You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. I hope everyone is doing well today and as always, I'm going to slow things down and ask you to leave us a lovely review on Apple, on Spotify, Google, wherever you are listening, leave us a review. You keep on telling me that um, you like what we're doing and I'd love it if uh, you could just put that on the app that you're listening on so that more and more people can see what we're doing. I'd really appreciate it. Today's show is a good one. We're joined by Tom Hawkins from FTI Consulting. Tom is a quantum expert witness for construction and engineering industry matters and also, and perhaps more importantly for me, is a QS. So a little bit more than usual, I may be in my comfort zone today, although I'm sure as with most of my guests, I will quickly be extracted from that comfort zone. Enough about me. How are you doing today, Tom? Yeah, great, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, you know really, really, really good to be part of this podcast series. No, absolutely. It's all all my pleasure. I can assure you, I have so much fun doing this every single week. And you're sat in central London. You've got St Paul's over your right shoulder. Where are you today? What are you doing? Yeah, so I'm in our in our uh, client offices in London. Fantastic building, as you said. St Paul's in the background. I mean, what more could you ask for, really? No, fantastic, mate. Fantastic. And so. I know you, there are some people in the industry that we both mutually know as well. For everyone who is listening, who don't know who Tom Hawkins is, don't know who FTI Consulting are, talk to us about you, your experience, and now the business that you're in. Great. So I'll start with FTI, I think, just give you a, a very, very quick introduction to them. So FTI Consulting is about 7,000 people worldwide. Um, we're a independent global business advisory firm. You know, we're dedicated to helping organizations sort of manage uh, and mitigate risk and resolving disputes. So certainly not going to go into everything FTI does because, we, you know, we could take up the whole podcast just doing that <laughs> on its own. But one of the things that, we, you know, uh, we aim to be is experts with impact. You know, so we hopefully, you know, offer the clients that, you know, number one service, helping them manage their risks. The sector that I sit in is forensic and litigation consulting, which is effectively our... Crikey. Yeah, our, our dispute resolution arm, effectively. I sit in the construction solutions team, so it's all, you know, construction-based work. Um, you know, anything from arbitrations, litigations, all the way through to mediations and, you know, what, exactly what we're going to talk about today, dispute avoidance, hopefully. Okay, excellent. And so you're a QS who's clearly got a passion for the legal and contract and dispute side of things. How did that come about? Yeah, so well, I, when I first started, I um I did um, part time degree with one of our actual our mutual acquaintances, and I did that for about five years. And I worked for um, I did the same as well, by the uh, way. There we go. You see, so already we're uh, we're mutually connected in in many ways. Worked for um, a house builder for about five five and a half years. QS, so you know, worked way through from training up to sort of QS on site. But as I was doing that degree, you know, I always sort of had a passion for the uh, the legal side of it and the, the contracts and the, you know, I wouldn't say so much the dispute side, but, you know, that sort of uh, area of um, specialty within the, the sort of the QS field. And then I, I moved into a sort of smallish sort of consultancy doing PQS work, but I was always really looking for a dispute resolution kind of role within the, you know, construction commercial sphere. I, I, I don't know. I just, you know, 
totally talk to the modules when I was doing it at uni. You know, I think before I, I went and became a QS, I was looking at a law degree and didn't do it. You know, I quite like the building trade and, you know, wanted to be involved in construction. So didn't follow that route. But I've always sort of had a, you know, a hankering to go back to it. And so when I was at that small consultancy, you know, they kind of always knew I was looking for this sort of work. And I got lucky that a role came up, you know, trainee entry level, dispute resolution, dispute avoidance. Still, as you know, as a quantity surveyor, just doing a, a different sort of field. And I took that role and I've you know, been doing that now for the last sort of seven, eight years. So all in all, I've been in industry for 14 years, which is, uh, you know. Fantastic. And you've got like a, a background and a grounding in boots on the ground, understanding delivery at the house builder and then actually moving which must ground you quite well for a lot of the work that you then do with your dispute resolution now now you've got an interesting title almost you're a uh, quantum expert witness i kind of know what that is but i mean it sounds awfully awfully posh can you talk me through (laughs) what a quantum expert witness is Absolutely, I think to... you, 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 you look perplexed yourself. <laughs> um, I think one of the th- probably the, the key things to probably explain to, to anyone listening first is that my title is still I'm a quantity surveyor. You know, by trade I'm a quantity surveyor. That's what my skills are. That's what my training is, and that's what I still practice today. The next stage to that is exactly as you've just said is, is the quantum expert witness. For me, trying to put it in a nutshell is effectively a quantity surveyor but with a more forensically minded approach. So effectively you are, you know, you're an independent quantity surveyor, typically appointed by parties, you know, it could be single or joint, um, but your your main role, if you're, you know, a, a part 35 expert witness is to provide a court or a tribunal with an independent valuation of, of the costs of the dispute. So you're effectively there to provide the court with assistance on your area of expertise. So for me, that would be, you know, quantity surveying and, and valuation of construction work always around the numbers and the finance and the QS workers around it. So when I was in industry, and I won't refer to either the company or the project, but it was a very significant project that I worked on. And there was a dispute on that project. Bizarrely, or uniquely, perhaps around the topic of silicon elasticity in a bomb blast scenario with regards to the external facade of the project now it's really complex and convoluted right but the reason why i raise this is so i've previously appointed an expert witness for that particular project now i appointed him um, to support our arguments you talked there about being kind of independent are you always like how do you if you're appointed in that example i appointed this believe it or not an expert in silicon elasticity in bomb blast facades. We appointed them, which naturally means that there isn't neutrality there, right? How does you, you talked about independently appointed and independent thinking? How do you how does that sit with you? So, in in terms of your scenario, if you appointed a true expert witness, they would be independent. They they have to be independent. You know, they have a duty to the court or the tribunal to be independent particularly you know, in the UK with the civil procedure rules part 35 so if you appoint them on that approach they, they would have to be independent I mean th- there's a slight difference probably between somebody who has you know probably fantastic commercial knowledge but you're appointing them more of as a, an, an advocate or you know in your case someone who's you know trying to put your position forward and that isn't you know they, they might be an expert in their field and what they do but in terms of the the sense of expert witness 
they aren't an expert witness. They're probably there advocating your position. And that's that's one of the real key differences there. And the difference there is the fact that it's not a Part 35 expert witness. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so it's in, the, in the UK, it's in litigation, you know, there's civil procedure rules, Part 35, that sets out, you know, what an expert, you know, should, a, a truly independent expert witness should do. So you can have expert witnesses, for example, in adjudication processes, that, you know, there's not necessarily Part 35 covering that, but, you know, you'd still expect your expert witness to act independent, you know, if you want that adjudicator to rely on, because as an expert witness, you know, it's, it's your opinion and that you're putting forward. So you want to be able to, you know, test the scenarios um, you know, both your, your appointing clients and also the, you know, I guess the opposing side's position. And, you know, it's your duty to then put forward your true opinion on both of those cases. You know, you're not just there to advocate your, your own, uh, you know, appointing client's position. One side of things. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. And so what is a misconception about expert witnesses that you would like to dispel? I think we've we've probably almost hit the nail on the head there is that, you know, expert witnesses, you know, yes, they are appointed by a party, you know, in most cases, that's probably the way it goes, but they're not there to be an advocate of your position. You know, if, if you truly want an expert witness, they're there to be independent. So we all know that, you know, construction projects can get complex. You know, there's a lot of mechanics and a lot of things that evolve, you know, as a construction project goes from inception right the way through to completion. And so as part of that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an expert witness in quantity setting. Obviously, for us two, that's probably you know we could sit here and talk all day and you know keep keep this podcast going for hours about that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's expert witnesses in delay and programming. You know, you get technical expert witnesses, architectural silicon expert witnesses. expert witnesses. There we are. You see, you know, real niche topics. But that that's probably exactly. where you know that's probably exactly where the court may, you know may find they need some help though because you know to us it's niche. So if we're in the industry and we find it niche, you know, somebody who's you know. I'm not certainly not for one minute saying that uh, you know a, a learned judge is a, a you know a, a lay person by any stretch, but if they need expert help, then you know it's it's on the industry to you know find those people and put them forward. But they have to be you know truly independent to, to be able to put themselves forward as that expert witness. Fantastic, that's a great answer, and you've already dispelled the misconception that I had quite clearly only <laughs> five minutes ago, right? Uh, from yeah. my own experience, so fantastic on that. Maybe my memory isn't serving me quite as well as it should be of the actual experience, but. You talk about there's a multitude of reasons as to why we get into disputes. Now, I was thinking about before this conversation, knowing that you're a man who is trying to reduce the number of disputes that people are involved with. This is something that you're passionate about. So I wanted to have a little look at kind of like the reasons and the numbers for disputes, right? And so I saw a recent report, it was actually by Arcadis, who I think you used to work for, but it was a report that said, in 2020, UK construction disputes rose by 117%. I'm guessing that might be something to do with the pandemic as well. But that, according to that same report, the primary reason that there was disputes was the fact that developers, contractors and subcontractors, so kind of like all the parties to the contract, are failing to understand and or comply with their obligations. And that was the primary reason. The secondary reason being errors and mistakes in the contract and the third reason being a failure to make interim awards on extension of time and compensation so if you're a listener and any of those three reasons are going off in your mind as things that are happening on your contract right now or that you're aware of that's alarm bell should be ringing because they're the three primary reasons for a dispute what's your experience with the disputes why do you care so much about reducing the number that we have in terms of what you just said there it's it 
I think there's two parts to it. The first one is, is clearly, you know, that there is a lot of um, data out there that suggests, you know, exactly as you've just, just listed there, Paul, you know, top reasons are around the contract and what the, con you know, people not administering the contract properly, people not understanding the contract, people not, you know, following contractual obligations. But I think we've almost got to take it a step back as well, because one of the, the, the key messages I think we, we need to get across is obviously that live construction projects happen you know are happening and they're going on and people are involved in those construction projects and obviously disputes can occur for any number of reasons and, and you know you've touched you know on three real key issues there but i think one of the things that often gets forgotten well there's two things that often get forgotten which you know then lead into i guess where we're going is that number one people you know forget that there's a job still to be delivered so you know the time the cost and the effort that people put into these projects you know that they if a dispute sort of starts crystallizing, people forget that there's still a project to deliver. And that for me is one of the real key drivers as to why, you know, we should look to dispute avoidance and, and how we can, you know, find methods and processes and techniques to potentially avoid those. But then one of the other big things that I think that, you know, probably comes a little bit to three points you picked up on is that people often draft in the contracts, you know, there's a, a, a like a bid team and, and those sort of things at the top. I don't know if this is representative of your experience, but there'd be a bid team and, you know, the, the, the senior people all sort of sign them and, and everybody probably has a, a route map in their mind of how the contract will move forward. And then it gets passed over to a project delivery team and it just goes in the almost in the top drawer or the bottom drawer, if you like, and gets forgotten about. And so then all these obligations and, you know, ideas that the parties have signed up to and captured in that contract almost get forgotten yeah. yeah they get lost and then obviously the, the delivery happens people carry on as they were deliver jobs as they did the last one you know and i'm sure there are plenty of successful examples out there you know of, of jobs being delivered great and continuing that process job after job but obviously we work in an industry as well where you know disputes are quite or certainly everybody would probably be aware of a job that has a dispute on it you know uh, there's a, a another industry report that's come out recently that i think sort of said one in four jobs uh, people have experienced a dispute of some description I mean, and obviously they're gonna, list it, doesn't it yeah uh, you know if you said that to someone in the construction industry that you know your listeners probably aren't sat there going well, actually that doesn't resonate with me yeah they're probably sat there going it? yeah they're probably sat there going well actually yeah i could probably understand that and you know sometimes disputes aren't always you know the mega multi-million pound disputes they're you know they can be much the, smaller. the smaller disputes yeah, yeah. And, and they could be a, you know a vast range of anything I want um, to um, kind of bizarrely enough. I was actually speaking to one of our clients today about our product, how it helps. Um, I'm going to plug my product here. I don't do this often, but how it helps hand over from the estimator to the QS, right? In terms of subcontract procurement, it allows you to understand various bits and pieces, so it makes the seamless the process from estimate to live project seamless in regards to QSing. Now. I've never really thought about what you've just said there, which is effectively the pre-construction team agree a huge amount of A, contractual points, B, scope points, C, attendances points, the list goes on, and that process then gets delivered to project manager, QS, site manager, whoever is actually delivering it, and often gaps can be left in that handover. One of the things that we used to do one of the initiatives we had at my old company was that you would have like a contract kickoff, effectively, from pre-construction to construction. I, I was kind of like the conduit between the two, so I would often chair those. And we found that they were very useful in terms of saying, like, these are the salient points that you need to take away from 
the tender that are in the contract you've got to focus on. What's your advice about that process then, if you think that's one of the areas where often things fall through the cracks? I mean, firstly, nothing wrong with the shameless plug there, Paul, you know, for, for your own product. <laughs> Definitely got to get we'll that in. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I honestly don't yeah. do it often, but yeah, everyone check it out. Yeah, I set it up for you there, didn't I? Didn't even have to prompt me. Um, but it, Fantastic. In, term, in terms of that sort of that handover, I mean, there's only so much, I guess, you can capture, isn't there? In You know, yeah. how long were your meetings? Typically an hour, maybe two. I, I don't know. Yeah, know. I mean, it'd probably be an hour, hour yeah. and a half, two. Yeah, something like that. You know, so so um, one of the things that you, you probably find in that upfront bit is, you know, there are, there are a number of standard form contracts, you know, within the building industry. Um, you know, they set out various obligations, you know, managing risk, you know, when to get the contractors and the supply chain involved. You know, there are various things that obviously, you know, they, they all capture and, and the procurement and tendering routes, certainly for us, you know, as QSs and being part of that commercial team. But often they, they you know, they get amended, you know, parties want to change the risk profiles, you know, parties don't want to, you know, get the contractor involved early or they don't want to get the supply chain involved early or, you know, there are various different things, but ultimately, you know, most jobs I'd say you work on probably end up, you know, with a change to those sort of standard terms. And then they might get forgotten about or the true ramifications aren't followed through with all the clauses, you know, or, you know, that there's numerous things that could happen where what you think you're doing at that time may not necessarily transpire as to what happens later on you in the project. think it's clever, but actually you shoot yourself in the foot. Well, it's not even, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's always being clever so much. It's just, you know, you might want to try and alter something to make it more beneficial. But until you're on site delivering the job, sometimes things just don't even spring to mind, do they? You know, if you don't have that sort of ability to learn from past projects or you've not tried it in the past, you know, you don't want to stop innovation because obviously innovation is what keeps us moving and what keeps industry driving forward. But at the same time, there's got to be some sense checks there as to around, you know, if we're amending standard form contracts that have been drafted by, you know, people with, you know, very, you know, various degrees of uh, industry experience, we, we picked that contract for, yeah, exactly. Why we picked that contract for a reason. Why are we then sort of amending it and changing it to suit? What I agree we want? with that. And, you know, I've, I've worked on contracts before where the amendments were longer than the actual standard form contracts. It's just absolutely absurd. And it's interesting that you say effectively, you're kind of advocating for don't change the standard form contracts without due need right to some to some degree you're rolling your eyes a bit but that's kind of these contracts are set up to be balanced and to work well for the industry why are we changing them yeah i think there's that you've probably hit the exact key word there is balance you know there's got to be a balance so you know one one thing about avoiding disputes is obviously allocate because one of the big things we do is qs is allocation of risks you know so so if you're amending a standard contract for example to just push risk down the supply chain is the party you're passing it on to necessarily the best party to own that risk you know if you're an employer you may potentially end up incurring increased costs you know if you're the contractor or the subcontractor taking it on are you actually aware of what you're taking on and that's potentially well, clearly not because in, yeah, yeah. In what the, the number one reason being that they don't understand what what's in the contract it's these things require depth in the conversation i think and we're at the end of the first half of this show so we will talk about it in more detail in the second half of the show hello it's me again i wanted to share a quick story with you on why i co-founded ceiling with my best mate chris chris and i we're both qs's and this is going to sound sad but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering 
and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you, or someone you know, tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. Oh, Tom, the JCT, the JCT. I spent my, I feel like I spent my entire 20s reading the JCT. I'm that much of a sad individual. You talk about the JCT on the other side of the show. I rudely interrupted you because we had to go to our break. But talking to you now in the context of previous conversations I've had on this show, quite recently actually, and in the context of this report that we've been talking about today, which basically outlines the number one reason for a construction dispute, of which there are too many, I think we can all agree on, is a failure by the parties to that contract to understand or comply with their obligations in that contract. Now, the majority of construction contracts that I worked on were the JCT. So I'm going to lean into the JCT because I think that's an area that you're more comfortable as well with having with your experience. We have had people on the show... Um, we had Sarah Fox on the show, who is passionate construction contract expert, who kind of doesn't rubbish the JCT, but thinks that there is a better way for us all to work on condensed contracts that people understand. Now, I'm not 100% advocating for that, but I do think there is resonance in what she's saying, particularly in the context of what we've just discussed. The number one reason for a dispute is people don't understand what's in the contract. How does that make you feel? What's your view on the JCT? So I, th- I think you've probably captured two really key points there, which is the JCT. Well, I guess firstly the, J- the you know, JCT, you know, and obviously the other standard forms, you know, the NEC, you know, international users might recognise FIDIC, and there are obviously others available, you know. But the main thing with the contract is to you know sort of set out what the obligations for the parties are. So. For me, you know, the, the fundamental reason for having that contract is to set out those obligations, you know, set out the routes that the parties will follow, set out, you know, what they've agreed. Um, you know, we go back to our point earlier, you know, about the, the pre-bid win team, if you like, and then, you know, the, the post team actually deliver the project, you know, those two. There's, there's got to be some connection there. But I think one of the one of the other things as well that needs to come over is that contracts are only one tool. You know, there's also got to be, it's got to be the people that are delivering those contracts as well. So for me, it's not just around, you know, the contract, what's in the contract. And, and I agree with, you know, what you were saying earlier, potentially, you know, that we obviously have disputes in the industry. You know, I don't think anyone can get away from that fact. So it's, you know, and if the contracts are, you know, seem to be causing those, then clearly we need to look at something and, you know, reducing the words in them and, and you know, changing the obligations potentially. So, or, you know, changing the wording so that people can understand them. It, it's certainly, you know, some tools we could look at. But it's also looking at the people within those contracts and, and, you know, people administering those contracts, for example, you know. But 
But do you think that they need to... Do you think if you clearly understood the obligations that you had, if it was... I think about this, and it's funny, because at the business I was working in, there was a point where I was probably the go-to person for JCT within this massive organisation. We were a subcontractor, but within this company, which was turning over a huge amount of money, and I was... I'm no expert expert in it, but people would come to me and say, can you help me understand this? That's crazy. When you then say, we've got all of these disputes going on because people don't understand what's happening. And you just think, kind of part of you thinks, we can be be better than this. And at the same time, I often advocate for clients to use the JCT because it has been drafted by a conglomerate of organisations, right, with the best interest of balance in the sector. So I think it's kind of the best thing we've got. Is it, do you see what I mean? It's it's difficult. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the one thing we have to obviously point out is that you know the, the NEC, for example, has a, a clause in it. Uh, and, you know, there'll be far better people than me to quote the NEC clause. As you know, as you pointed out, JCT's also my background. You know, I've got experience in in the other forms as well. But in the NEC, they've got a clause. That, you know, they act in spirit of mutual trust and cooperation. But there are still high-profile cases that come to the courts, or you know, probably everybody's aware of an adjudication of things that happen. Not necessarily around that clause, but you know, there's still disputes happening under NECs. You know, the NEC prescribes a lot of, um, you know, sort of admin-style uh, obligations on the parties that they need to follow, and obviously, if they don't, then there are consequences on that. There's still things that need to be done, and there's still disputes that arise from that. So I don't necessarily think on its own the contract can just be the sole cause of the disputes. It's also this is why you're talking about the people. The people, yeah, it's the behaviours, you know, the attitudes, you know. It's changing how people administer those contracts. You know, it's moving away from, you know, potentially historic sort of adversarial kind of opinions of the industry and, and trying to, you know, change it so we get that, you know, mutual trust working in collaboration with each other, you know, trying almost, you know, early in contra- early contractor involvement, you know, bringing in everybody together at early stages in the job, you know, may potentially avoid some of these, you know, for example, if you get a design issue later down the line, because you haven't brought, you know, maybe the M&E subcontractor in early enough. Whereas if they're in early and, you know, potentially we're looking at like things like BIM, you know, they could potentially help sort of solve some of those issues. I'm not saying they're going to eradicate everything or, or you know, because let's be honest, what, what what's going to happen is you are going to get disputes. You know, unfortunately, that's going to happen. But it's how can you avoid them and how can you avoid them being... Uh, how can you avoid the impacts of them being so detrimental to your project that, you know... I guess what, yeah, kind of what you're alluding to is... Forget about the JCT or forget about NEC or FIDIC. Forget about all of them. You're still going to get disputes because of, or disputes will still exist because, or will occur because of the way that the industry is framed and kind of like the mindset of the industry to some degree. And it's changing that mindset will help us to reduce the number of disputes. So you work to, you do many different things, but one of the things that you're passionate about is avoiding dispute you've started to allude to it there but talk to me about the tactics that you would employ or that you advise people to employ in order to avoid disputes so there are many i think one thing to probably clarify is that you know i think we we're, none of us are naive enough to think disputes are ever going to be truly avoided you know you get two parties you get more parties there are people that are going to have differences of opinion 
on things. So it, it's how do you best manage those disputes so they don't become detrimental to your project. You know, they don't have time, cost, and, and effort impacts that you know ultimately cause issues later down the line when you're trying to get that project delivery done. So there are, there are probably soft techniques and avoidance processes that. You know, people can put in place so some of the top soft techniques i mean i alluded to one earlier but you know engaging people early i think that's a you know, fantastic technique if you know if the project allows that i think as well some of these things have to be tailored to the size and scale of your project you know i, I think you could always you know bring certain parties in early you know contractor and the employer you know getting together maybe key supply chain members you know if your job is very m e heavy you know you probably want your m e contractor in early but so honing in on that because collaboration early contractor engagement these are all kind of like the buzzwords that we hear and you know if we do these things it's going to the world's going to be a better place and to some degree it is but let's picture a real life example we've got a property developer a main contractor and how how and who should they be in is it a case of saying you know the problem on this job or the major risk on this project is the M&E using your example how are we going to collectively manage that risk um, and then inviting in m and How would you actually practically go about doing that? You must have seen good examples. Yeah, so, you know, we're probably talking more here about the professional quantity surveyors rather than the, the contractors QS at the moment. But, you know, thinking about the procurement and tendering practices. So right at the start of the job, you know, what kind of route does, what does your employer want? You know, what what's the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve, which it, in effect is going to be, you know, your, your building, your oil and gas pipeline, you know, your water pipeline, your airport, whatever it may be. So it's about understanding your risks right at the start and how you effectively manage those risks. So, you know, taking the M&E example, if your job is very M&E heavy, at the, right at the start of the job, some somebody must be there to advise the client. You know, certainly a good PQS and, you know, good product delivery team should be advising the client that one of your key risks is your M&E package. So, if you want to try and mitigate some of those issues, why don't you bring in the M&E specialist early to work, for example, with your design team to try and avoid some of those issues? You know, you're not necessarily going to avoid everything because, as we know, we live in in the real world. You know, it's it's so easy, isn't it, to do things in in, in paper and on a screen, but when you've actually got to deliver it, there's there's a job to be built and challenges and things occur in you know as the project evolves and moves forward. So it's just about making sure that where you're trying to manage those risks you've got process in place to manage those risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And so you talk, that's so you talked about soft tactics, one of them being early engagement, specialist engagement. Talk to me about the other tactics. So, I mean, still sticking with some of the soft tactics, but, you know, one I'm of the things that... I'm interested in all the hard tactics are. Is, <laughs> that, is, that, where we, is that where we're going next? Uh, well, possibly. I mean, so <laughs> let me stick with the soft tactics, then maybe we'll go with you know the, the, the sort of yeah. the harder processes, I guess, if you like. But one of the things for me that I see going back to sort of my my quantum expert witness role is ultimately there's a lack of records kept on the jobs. One of the mantras that I, I don't know about you when you were you know practicing on site. One of the things that was drilled into me was records, records, and for God's sake, get more records. Yeah, because if the records are there it's so much easier to have a conversation and a discussion. You can pretend, I'm not saying again, you're going to avoid every dispute because some people might, you know, we could read something and both read it different ways. That's just, you know, human nature and how we work. But if there's a record there, you know, an email that says, you know, Joe Bloggs did this on X date and this is the reason why. And it's, you know, contemporaneous email or whatever it may be, or it's, you know, progress meeting, site report, whatever it may be. 
well, surely that's a you know a damn good start of understanding where the records are and what you've got. And you have clarity, of course, then to actually say, well, this is what happened. Leave me alone. I've won that argument again, though, and I'm gonna be uh, cynical. Right, I'm a QS, so it comes naturally. But you talked about collaboration, you know, early engagement, right? Some people will be listening and thinking, records, records, records doesn't feel very collaborative right because i think it you have to do it right but it it feels to me like that is the fact that we have to do that often i was a subby right the fact we had to do that we'd often get told don't send me that it's aggressive it's contractual i don't want to see it right and you kind of think you you cannot win which is why then when you hear you know collaborative working and all these things kind of it washes over me a little bit and i think well it's impossible because then by the same token, I have to keep all these records, but then I'm told that's not collaborative. Do you see what I mean? It's it's almost a thankless task, isn't it? Uh, well, I, I think this is where it's, you know, when we were talking earlier about changing historical mindsets because... You've got to change my mindset. Well, I've, absolutely. Because, you you know, you I was exactly like you, you know, when I first started out in, in the respect of, you know, why am I keeping these records? Because it sounds very adversarial, but... You know, there's nothing wrong with keeping records and then having a discussion with someone about, oh, this is what we actually did. Here's the record to show it. You know, it's about changing people and people's mindsets and, and you know, a bit of leadership in terms of company cultures around, you know, all we're doing is keeping records so we can actually understand what we've done, how we've delivered something and where we're going. I think the historical mindset is that if you've got a record, you're going to go, you know, wave it in someone's face say look this is what i did this is why i'm entitled to you know x y and z and it, the idea it shouldn't be like that it should be look you know we keep these records they're there if we need them you know we can rely on them we can use them but they're there to be you know hopefully for the the benefit of everybody because then everybody understands where we are and exactly what's happened fascinating and that's you know uh, really interesting point regarding leadership and company culture because you know theoretically as a subcontractor with a load of records that are to recording what was happening on site for the main contractor, often being delayed by the employer, right? It's actually quite a good thing that you're actually keeping all of these records because the main contractor then has all the records that they can then use themselves, right, as and when it is important. So that chimes with me. And actually, a bit of a change in mindset and company culture could actually outwardly say, this is something that we do. We do it on every single project. It's part of our process it's not adversarial. It's for the sake of keeping records because at the end of the day, it's to our shared greater good. Absolutely. You know, there's, I don't see any harm in that. You know, and you know, should you, unfortunately, you know, jobs get delayed, things happen sometimes, you know, and obviously under those contractual obligations, you know, you as a subby might be entitled, for example, say lost an expense from your main contractor. I certainly so, was. Well, there you are, you see. I'm sure you've been in many situations where that, that's cropped up. So if... As part of, you know, a claim for prolongation, obviously, depending on what your contractual terms say, but generally it's around, you know, you claim for your actual costs and losses incurred. So, for example, say you're claiming for your management site team, you know, your preliminary staff, if you, or, you know, even labour or whatever it may be, if you don't have timesheets, you know, you don't have, you know, subcontract orders. So, yeah, exactly. You know, you've got those records. They're there for you to use and you can start having a constructive conversation with, you know, in your instance as as a subby with your main contractor. You know, again, you're not trying to do it. Commercial conversation as opposed to a legal dispute, right? That's the difference of where it would end up if you don't have those records. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, exactly as you said, records on their own aren't going to be the one key change to everything. But if you've got those records, it probably makes your life a lot easier to have those conversations with somebody than if you're sort of entering a meeting almost blind with nothing to support, you know, the position you're, you're trying Talking to have. anecdotally about what's happened on the project as opposed yeah. to saying this is what's happened. We need to manage it together to get to a decent resolution. So we're talking about these softer, I'm desperate to get to these <laughs> harder <laughs> um, rules that we like. You've got soft tactics. What other harder tactics if you've got any? <laughs> I, 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 I suppose we've probably slightly misbadged it here as, as harder, you know, tactics and techniques. It's, it's more, yeah, yeah. It's definitely been a misbranding there, Paul. I think it's more around, you know, you know, unfortunately, some some conflicts and issues can sort of go that next stage. You know, they probably maybe need a bit of third party intervention or, you know, need, need that next sort of next level. So it's around the, the processes that are available there. So, you know, the one thing I would always say is that as a party, if you think you're going to a dispute and there's option to do so, negotiate, you know, and, and I'm not saying be unreasonable, you know, you have to be unreasonable and just concede on everything, but the costs that you will then incur as a party, you know, going through to some of the processes we'll talk about in a minute, the, the harder processes, if you like, you're going to incur costs that you may not necessarily recover. You know, you're going to expend time again, you're not going to recover. You know, there's going to be effort involved in that. So as a party, if you can negotiate and make reasonable compromises, potentially, you know, I think that's one of the real key things in those negotiations is to have that willingness to make reasonable compromises. Because ultimately, if you're sucked into a real, you know, big dispute resolution process it's going to take up a lot of your you know if you're a commercial Time, manager energy yeah, certainty yeah yeah 100 all those sort of things that's really yeah no that makes complete sense and you know both of our shared experiences are probably working for larger organizations or on the, on the bigger projects i think certainly is mine now with c-link as a business we work with a lot of sme contractors a bit smaller projects generally where the budgets are smaller probably the disputes are smaller as well um you may have just um summed it up to be honest with you what how would you advise smaller businesses who then cannot and do not want to employ you know expert witnesses go through all these expensive processes what's your advice to those guys specifically it's hard isn't it because if you're you know smaller down the chain potentially you know you you're probably right you don't have the budget to go to you know expert witnesses you don't necessarily have the budget to go to lawyers and, and legal teams but obviously if you also have an entitlement under the contract you, know, you, you obviously want to make sure you you know you get that entitlement and let, you know most disputes resolve around time at, uh, of some description and probably around cost don't they there obviously are various other things you can have disputes on so it's trying to prove that entitlement so it is around you know a lot of the soft techniques we talked around earlier you know definitely around the negotiation and there has to be you know even if you think you're bang to rights, then obviously, you know, there is potentially a case then where you actually you'd say negotiation is not necessarily the right way for me. But you have got to you know, really think that if you don't have the budget to succeed, and this is probably maybe one of the slight drawbacks, because obviously if you're uh, a larger commercial entity, you can... You can you sit know, and may, wait. Yeah, you may sit and wait and push on that. And it, obviously that is one of the un, you know unfair things of, of how that works. But we also live in that commercial world, don't we? So they're not necessarily going to be able to get away from that. But there are other, you know, examples that, you know smes could use so they could for example turn to you know maybe expert determination you know where you bring in an expert the parties could jointly agree they bring in the expert on whatever the dispute topic may be and that expert could publish you know a, a decision and reasoning as to why they've come to that decision now the parties obviously have to contractually agree that it, it has some effect 
but it might give you, you know, if you pick the right expert and they are truly independent, it might give you a flavor of where it would go if it became a fully blown dispute. And so therefore, you know, that's potentially one route you could go down. Saving cost, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, well, that's one of the big things I think to get, to get across is to any party that thinks they're going to run disputes all the way through is that there is going to be a cost involved. You know, there is going to be that time and there's going to be that effort. And the more you get through it, the more it's going to cost you, the more time and the more effort you're going to have to put in there. Which is why you want to perhaps avoid is the wrong word, but reduce your exposure to disputes. And I think what I've learned from this conversation, amazing, we're already at the end, but I think the takeaways really are that, you know, from what you've described, whether you're a small business or a larger business, really the things that can help reduce the number of disputes that you get into are it's about your company culture and about how you present, how you're going to keep records and outwardly to your client, but also inwardly to your team. That's just part and parcel of what you do and there's very good reasons to do that. The fact that you can always negotiate, that is the best way out uh, or best way to avoid, but also really comprehensively understanding your contract, right? And if the primary reason that you're getting into disputes or that we are getting into disputes as an industry is a lack of understanding of the contract then really you as a business you have to completely and utterly understand the contract you're on and it's crazy to even be suggesting that as a problem but it's so fundamental isn't it yeah it's exactly that you know you have contracts and you have people they're obviously we could talk about other factors but for me they are the fundamental too of avoiding disputes if you can get those to to sort of mirror up and and you know, be a lot more in harmony as to around how the contract works and the people's attitudes and the cultures that they have. You could go a long way to probably avoiding some of the the impacts of disputes, or you know, avoiding disputes altogether if you you know, lucky enough to do that. One hundred percent. And on that note, Tom, believe it or not, like I said, we're at the end of the show. It's gone super fast. You see, I'm more at, I'm at ease when I'm talking to QSs. Um, so I've, I've <laughs> we're a special brief, Paul. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I will be leaving uh, Tom's details, FTI Consulting's details in the podcast description. Goes without saying, Tom, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Pleasure is all mine. And guys. I know that you're going to put your phones down now and or you're going to pick up your phone and look at another podcast to listen to or something. Do just leave us that review. I would be very, very appreciative. I will speak to you next week. Tom, see you later, mate. Thanks, guys.